46 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me as always, my fun-loving pod people colleagues, Ken Best. We're here. Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Maxine Filivon. Hello. We hope you're all doing well. I hope you recovered from our very scary Halloween episode. So scary. I hope it wasn't too scary. Um, we don't really have anything, I wouldn't say scary, up for this week, maybe? I don't know. What I saw of your history corner looks a little scary. Yeah, actually, the history corner is kind of scary this week. Um, that's fine, though. And uh, as you listen to this, uh, hopefully, um, <laughs> Ken, Julie, and I are uh, on our way back from a conference where we presented about our podcast to higher education professionals. Again. Again. We're They're in, letting us do this more than once. We're in demand. And we filled out the paperwork for another one in March. Uh, On a road tour. We're bigger than the Beatles, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get right into it. Let's get into some headlines. Uh, Julie, what's new? We have some sad news from um, research out of UConn and Yale. UConn Health and Yale, opioid overdose deaths in Connecticut have doubled in the past six years, largely driven by the use of opioids in combination with fentanyl and other substances. Based on data from the state's Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, there was a 221% increase in opioid-related drug overdoses from 2012 to 2018. The findings were published recently in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. The analysis found that fentanyl was involved in almost 80% of all overdose deaths in 2018 in Connecticut, but more than half of fentanyl-related deaths involved at least one other drug. While many initiatives have been implemented to reduce opioid prescription misuse, understanding the potential role of polysubstance use in accidental overdose deaths may facilitate the development of new prevention and intervention strategies, the researchers say. Wow. <laughs> Not much you can say about that. No, nope, that's sobering news. Um, Ken? I have more fun, though. Good. The Puppet Forum is coming up very soon. Opioids to puppets. (laughs) We really cover it all. Every conceivable angle. That's in our... The next Puppet Forum is about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Macy's Tony Sarge and the Invention of Inflatable Puppets, which will feature the authors of a book about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Robert Grippo and Christopher Hoskins, executive director of the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry, John Bell. And the event will be moderated by engineering professor Mehdi Anwar on November 21st at 7 p.m. at the Ballard Institute Theater, which is at One Royce Circle in downtown stores. Inflatable puppets really came into their own as balloons, for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade many, many years ago. And they were put together by puppeteer Tony Sarge and engineers from the Goodyear Rubber Company. So they're going to be able to hear all about that, see some slides and maybe some video. I'm not sure about that. Uh, And this is part of the Fall Puppet Form series, which takes place, as I said, at the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry. And you can get more information by going to BIMP, B-I-M-P, at yukon.edu. Very nice. I never thought of those as puppets, but... I guess they are. Yeah, makes sense. Well, we had the inflatable art exhibit at I the remember that. a few years ago. Where we had just gigantic balloons. And for a number of years, uh, my cousin worked in an office overlooking the parade route. Hmm. And we were at 
balloon height. So we would see all these gigantic balloons going right by the window. It'd be great if you didn't know what was happening. You just look outside and Snoopy's just just going right by. Love it. (laughs) That was the way to spend Thanksgiving. Maxine, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I guess I am a little bit. Um, There was a a hot topic editorial in the Daily Campus about uh, arguing that UConn should add a second week off in the fall semester. What do you think about that? Here's a hot take. Um, I want it. I'm tired. Yeah. Okay. All right. Please I can see that. To me. I feel like every other college that I've seen has it. And my friends at Wesleyan like have a fall break. Every other college has it. I'm tired. Did, Please. But give do me a they break. have a week off at Thanksgiving too? They have yeah. two. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that isn't that the same in um, the spring semester? We have spring break. And what else? Yeah, it's just the one. Okay, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> we only got Thanksgiving. Why week. are you so greedy? We only got Thanksgiving week about yeah, seven it was a very or eight recent years ago. development. It, it, it was never like that. Is it a week? Or and is reading it? days, you got yeah. reading days. I never had reading days. Okay, shoot days. me down. That's fine. <laughs> I'm tired. I used to walk uphill both ways. Oh boy! Wow. <laughs> I walked three miles to school. <laughs> I'm tired day. too. Like this is that's what life is. Life is being tired. Yeah, but we're actually getting paid. Get ready. I mean, we're getting paid to that's, be here. That's true. I'm paying to be here. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> exactly, which that's is a, why you should not want less cruel, less time for your money. They're not going to take this tuition is, this dollars This has turned into off. like crossfire. This is like, <laughs> yeah. this is like firing line. I feel like we William should F- add a new debate section. We should. Point, counterpoint. No, I wouldn't have any good taste. I feel like William F. Buckley Jr. overseeing. It would be, it would be the olds versus the students, yeah. basically. Get off my lawn. Very against one. We're, we're <laughs> all the good. olds, trust me, in this scenario. I'm sorry. Why did you bring this up, Tom? I, I thought we needed some controversy <laughs> to, to hook listeners in. That's what sells. Um, let's move on from controversy. Let's talk about uh, something not so controversial. Okay. Julie? Yeah. When you think of UConn basketball, I'm sure you don't think of what my segment is about to be about. You probably think of our men's and women's teams. But did you know that there is another very successful basketball team at UConn? No, I didn't. You didn't. I mean, I got the same email you did, so yeah, I did, but I'm just I'm playing along. <laughs> Thank you. The Chinese Students and Scholars Association basketball team plays in a national league that's for international students from China, and they've had quite the winning streak this year. I'm going to tell you all about it in this segment, and the first voice you'll hear after mine is sophomore J.C., who is from Malaysia and is an undecided major, major in the ACES program. I also spoke with the team's coach, Ethan Lee, a junior studying sociology, and Daniel Wong, another player who's a junior studying sport management. The Northeastern Chinese Basketball League started in Philadelphia in 2007 with six teams and has since grown to include 10 regions nationwide and more than 100 teams from top schools around the country. In late October, UConn's team, part of the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, won the Atlantic North Region Championship after an undefeated run, beating Northeastern, Boston College, Bentley, and UMass Boston to get to the final game. It's a crazy experience because we've been there last year, but we didn't get a championship. We end up in third. So this year was our time for like payback, and we finally won a championship. The championship game against BU was a nail-biter. The tough game was in the semifinals where we played against uh, Boston University. It was a tough game. We were down by 12 points, even though in the last five minutes. And in the last two minutes, we were still down by around six points. But because of team effort and defense, we catch up and then turn the score around, and we won the game. And finals is just, we just go with it. Daniel Wong, a junior, said he fell at the end of the game and watched the last few minutes from the bench. I saw the everything on the bench. That was crazy. I even, like, the two minutes before the game ends, I saw it will be, we were lost. 
we are lose the game, but finally we win. So I just, oh my god, I don't know how to say that. It just kind of like my mind is lost. For a group who loves basketball so much, winning is the icing on the cake. The members say they're happy just to play the sport in the U.S., which they view as the best country for basketball. Actually, like when we come to America, you know, America is kind of like the highest level basketball nation around the world. So we are like expected to have、um, any chances to play basketball in this nation. Like, I don't care what kind of like the ways we can play. We just want to play and touch the ball every day. So that's our way to like. To find out what we love, they love the sport, but with a heavy focus on schoolwork in their home countries, they didn't get to play as much as they would have liked growing up. Did you all grow up playing basketball? Um, actually, for Chinese students in China, it's not actually not since we have a lot of the heavy schoolwork、mm-hmm. when we are a child in our childhood. So we cannot like concentrate everything on the basketball. We have to like only take two hours per day, even even per week. To like pay attention on basketball, but but we still since we love it, yeah, we love it. Basketball was a draw for them in choosing to come to America. Daniel Wong was waitlisted at UConn and was about to go to Syracuse when a friend told him about the CSSA basketball team at UConn. The funny thing is, at the first time, the UConn actually gave me a waitlist for my offer. Really? So I waited on over like two months to get the final one, and、uh, actually. I decided to go to Syracuse University. I even buy the ticket, like I I handle everything, and then one of my friends from Yukon, which is bigger than me and from the same same home country, he told me that we have a team in Yukon and we play the games so professional.、Uh, it attracts me a lot.、It's、even though、uh, basketball for Yukon, like the school team is better than the Syracuse, that I know it so. At the second day, just the second day that this、uh, this person find find me and talk to me, and the second day,、uh, you can give me an offer. It's even the craziest I get a champion here. <laughs> Daniel said he's not only been to several UConn basketball games, he even tried out for the Huskies. It's a shame that they didn't want me. Ethan Lee went to high school in Boston. And I actually have done like campus visit during my high school years, and、uh, I just find here to be a like really beautiful place. First of all, like, and I just love here. Like, I love everything here. I love、uh, New England. I I love the atmosphere here. The fall was beautiful. JC had his sights on professional basketball before he was sidelined by an injury. For me, it's actually a long process. Coming to UConn, so at first, my plan was going to Europe, Barcelona, and go to the basketball academy. Wow! And study there and、um, train there, because I've been training, training like for a long time to get ready to play for the pros in in Spain and back in my country. However, during that time, I had a ligament tear on my right ankle, which I had to help back all my. All my things. I so I plan to come to US, study and take a look at the basketball world where all the top best players are, learn from them, and then my second year I probably would go to back to Spain and go back to where I should be. However, once I've been here, I start loving UConn. I love the atmosphere, the environment, like the people here, just really nice. They're very helpful, and because of Everyone that I know, I choose to stay here. 
Ethan, Jay, and Daniel say their basketball team helped them adjust to life at UConn. It's definitely helpful. And uh, we treat each other like family members. The whole team is a family. We got not only players, but the managers, and the even the, the CSSA, the Chinese Students Association. We all like family. We work together and uh, we play together. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that experience really helped us like enhance our relationship and uh, uh, help us integrate more into the Yukon community. Daniel said when he first joined the team, he wasn't very involved on campus. Some members in the team have the car. They will drive me to like some restaurant, the Chinese restaurant, since we, we miss the food so much. Yeah, to the around the campus. So it's kind of like we're brothers in a family, uh, especially for the rookies, that the new guys come to the team. Team since they don't know um, much thing about the Yukon, so we are kind of the um, the parents in the family. Big brothers, big brother, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really actually nice. amazing joining the team because I I I've been in the same place as they were when I came to the team. I have no idea. Like I thought Yukon was a very ghosted place because I came during the summer and there was no one around. So, but because of them, they took me around learn things they take care of me so i'm the one that's taking care of the new guys that come in so it's not just playing basketball being on a team we go out to eat together we help them to like prepare to study for exams we take them to workouts every single day so we spend time with each other telling them what do you have to prepare for during this time and what do you have to do so they are more comfortable with what like where they are right now in yukon the camaraderie is great, but the game is what it's really all about. The team is serious, and even past members have to make it through tryouts to play each year. Even though we're all members, we still have to go through a tryout, so we can't say like we're in for sure. So everyone has to try improving and work hard to make sure that you're on a team. It's really competitive. We have to like recruit people from, because not a lot of internationals come to UConn because it's a very small place here. Yeah, considered to other places in, in the States. So we have to like use um, social media called WeChat, which um, most of the Chinese students use. We get to them through the Chinese Association, CSSA, ask them to like share our information about the tryouts, and that's how they know about us. They come to tryouts, and everyone go to trial process, and our coach help us to choose which players are the best for the team. The team has worked hard in recent years to accomplish its goals and has its sights on continuing their winning streak in the national championships. In order to prepare for that, we we got training. We joined team. We joined the intramurals in school where it's high levels, like in the A League. So we put our players in there, train and play, so they can see how the difference is playing different, playing with um, people in UConn and outside with international students, and how do you like adapt to different situations. In April, the team will head to New York City for the league's version of March Madness, facing off against top finishers from other regions. The single elimination tournament takes place over three days. UConn's team has just missed the Final Four in the past few years. The team holds tryouts every year, and you can follow them on Instagram at Basketball. All right, that was great. Yeah, the only, the very disappointing thing that I learned out of that interview is that um, when they miss Chinese food, they go all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts to get what they consider good Chinese food. They said there is one restaurant in Vernon 
that is good in a pinch called Sichuan pepper. But um, yeah, to be reminded of home. So we are just in a Chinese food desert, I guess. I can vouch for Sichuan pepper. It's actually been reviewed in the New York Times. It's really Excellent. Good. All right. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. It's right near the record store owned by UConn alum Ian Schlein. Look at that. We're not getting paid. Uh, <laughs> Sponsor us. I thought what one of the interesting things was the bonding that this has mm. done for those guys because it's exactly what happens on the basketball Actually, every sport team, when you go through the the length of a season and the practices and the ups and downs of what's going on, it's that's what the coaches really like to see. And mm-hmm. even at that level, it's happening. Absolutely. Yep. Sports are I, – I wouldn't know. I've only ever played like individual sports, but it's family. What's the best time they went to in Cambridge? I have no idea. No. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Poor journalism. <sighs> Ken, let's keep this international flavor going. We are doing global this this uh, episode. Uh, earlier this year in July, uh, UConn violinist Solomia Ivankiv and cellist Sophie Shao traveled to Kiev to perform two free concerts with the National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine. Uh, the program included American Rhapsody, which was composed by their faculty colleague, Grammy winner Kenneth Fuchs, who we had on this podcast. Ukraine's National Symphony Orchestra is one of the finest orchestras in Europe, and it is celebrating its 100th year. And during its history, it has premiered works by major composers such as Sergei Prokofiev and Dmitry Shostakovich, and featured soloists including Artur Rubinstein, Yehudi Menuhin, Isaac Stern, Andrea Bocelli, and Jose Carreras. There's a reason we are writers. <laughs> <laughs> We're supposed to be podcasters. Anyway, on November 22nd, a Friday, professors Ivakiv and Shao will be the featured soloists with the National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine under the baton of conductor Volodymyr Serenko at the Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts. The program will include Professor Fuchs' American Rhapsody, as well as the Brahms Double Concerto and the Tchaikovsky Symphony No. 9. During a short pause in a very busy schedule of teaching and performance for our two music professors, uh, they stopped by the UConn 360 studio to talk about preparing for the Jorgensen performance. Was that the first time, Sophie, you've been to Ukraine? It's true. It's my first time that I've been in Kiev. But not yours. Not, no, I was born there. And I moved to the States in 1997 to attend the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. But I do projects in Ukraine regularly, I would say twice a year. And it gives me an opportunity to visit my family, but also to show where I am musically and uh, make a contribution to the Ukrainian musical life. And the National Symphony is celebrating its 100th year. And that's why they're doing this tour, which is going to bring them to stores. What was it like performing with them uh, really on that occasion in Kiev? I'm a big fan of my colleague, <laughs> Grammy-winning composer, uh, Kenneth Fuchs. And I fell in love with his piece, American Rhapsody, a few years ago. Had an opportunity to perform it here in stores. And then I thought, well, I want people in Ukraine to hear the, the, the American Rhapsody. And I reached out to the best orchestra uh, in Ukraine, which is the National Symphony. So I talked the, to the manager and to the their main conductor. 
conductor Volodymyr Sirenko, who is coming to conduct at the Jorgensen Center. And they got very excited. And then we decided to look for other Rhapsody-like pieces. And uh, when Professor Shao joined um, UConn faculty, we performed together Sensan, La Muse, and La Poète. And I thought, well, I want them to hear how wonderful she is. <laughs> so then Sophie agreed to fly to Ukraine and perform and make a, an album with me. And Sophie, how was it for you to play with the National Symphony? <laughs> it was really wonderful. They're a really wonderful orchestra. And what's interesting is that I never studied in Russia, but I realized after speaking with them and they were saying, oh, you're, you're playing is such Russian style. And I realized my main teacher uh, when I was at Curtis um, was also Russian himself. And I definitely picked up on that tradition. And Rostropovich was my idol and I played for him. And so I am steeped in the Russian tradition, even though I'm Taiwanese. This orchestra is historic to a certain extent, for most people, it's it's one of the longest-serving national symphonies, as near as I can tell from their information. And Shostakovich and Pro- Prokofiev, Prokofiev yep. premiered their works. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that that's an honor when you premiere such a prestigious composer's work. I'm not surprised because Prokofiev was born in Ukraine bef- before he moved to Russia to Moscow. So he he he's from east uh, eastern Ukraine, Mariupol. That would make perfect sense <laughs> that the Ukrainian orchestra would uh, premiere his pieces. Now you did a two outdoor concerts in Kiev, but there was a little bit of a hitch with the weather. Yes. So what happened? So the first day we had a glorious weather and I performed Kant's American Rhapsody uh, along with the Ukrainian um, composition by Kosa Natolsky. The piece is called Poem. And also I played a French composer, Chasson, and British, uh, Juan Williams, Lark Ascending. And I have to say everyone loved Kant's work. You should have seen people's faces and they were mesmerized and and I told them to imagine American beautiful uh, landscape, the beauty of American nature. And I think they did <laughs> while listening to the music. The next day, uh, Sophie and I were supposed to play Brahms Double Concerto, which we will be performing at the Jorgensen Center. And we were supposed to play Brahms Double and Saint-Saëns La Muse and La Poète came to rehearse and it was raining so we waited 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 and apparently they were um, they promised uh, thunderstorms so the manager of the orchestra decided to call it off so Sophie and I went back to the hotel then I kept getting phone calls that people are showing up to the concert <laughs> and that we have a pretty good audience so I asked Sophie would you mind if we go back to the park and play something for people and being Sophie and being a great sport as she is she said of course we have to go and play so what did we play Sophie? <laughs> We had uh, some hitches. Um, we, I played some Bach. Um, Solomia played some Bach. But while we were um, trying to find the music for the Handel Halverson, 
um, I realized I had downloaded at the place we were staying um, a violin and viola part. And so, t- and you played the cello. <laughs> and I played the cello. <laughs> so we had to so transpose. You know. <laughs> right, which is written in alto clef, and I needed a cello part. So then when I notified Solomia on the stage that this had happened and we had the wrong parts, uh, she went and played some Bach. <laughs> and we <laughs> ferociously looked for uh, the music. And so I read it off of her brother's um, iPhone. <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> Which was getting texts from his wife and his mom at True. the same time. My mother was calling and and she was like, Oh, that's why he wouldn't pick up. Like, yes, because Sophie was reading. I had to decline a call from his wife. I felt very bad. This is an example of improvisation. It wasn't a jazz group, but uh, an improv classical duo. And although officially concert was canceled, we still performed for for them. So they they were very grateful. But a different program. Yes. <laughs> for the performance here in stores, will there be anything different that you're adding because of the performance here, or is it going to be pretty much the show, the performance that was originally scheduled for Kiev? We'll p- play the uh, perform the American Rhapsody, but then the orchestra will play symphony because they want to showcase their abilities. We will be there to rehearse with them on a the day of the performance, and um, it's very exciting. I was going to ask about that as well because re- rehearsal is is important. But there's always not enough time to get everything covered in that period of time. I know uh, with certain forms of music, you can just walk in and everybody knows the basics and you can figure it out and go. But that's not the way it works when you're with a full orchestra and you have your responsibilities with your instruments. Uh, What is the process that you have to think through when you walk into that rehearsal for the morning, and then by the F, by the evening, you're you're on stage, dressed with ninety in a gown. people behind you, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and hopefully even more than ninety in front of you in the audience. <laughs> uh, well, preparation is the key, and uh, Sophie and I will get together again to rehearse. But I also trust uh, the conductor very much, that uh, uh, Volodymyr Sirenko, and I trust the orchestra because we rehearsed with them, and they are professionals, so. I, I know it will be a great performance. And funny enough, this is going to be a whole week for Sophie and I soloing because a day before that, on no- Thursday, November 21st, Sophie and I will be playing Beethoven Triple with Yukon Symphony and Andre Raphael uh, conducting and Malvin Chen, um, Deputy Dean at Yale, will join us on piano. Oh, so Thursday, we are doing Beethoven Triple. Friday, we are performing with the National Symphony of Ukraine, American Rhapsody, and Brahms Double. So it's going to be a good week. Yeah. <laughs> These are the hardest working women in show business. Love now. it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. I really enjoyed that. I thought, um, like in my piece, the joy that they spoke about their work with was. I believe they met while they were in uh, music school in the United States, and they formed a great friendship. And they've been uh, performing and recording together. And this will be, I guess, the fifth or sixth time they've done this. You know, I get a lot of criticism for the history corner. A lot of uh, a lot of people don't like certain things about the history corner. Who? 
Um, You're making that up. That's not. No, I, you know, there's one. But uh, <laughs> I think one of the things I get criticized for is that uh, too many of the uh, – the History Corner episodes are about things that happened long in the past. Oh, you're talking about me. <laughs> and, uh, it's history. It's supposed to be in the past. You're talking about me, I, Tom. I typically like to do that because all those people are dead and therefore can't be libeled. Yes, but, um, that is a good good. Word. But you know what? I can mix it up. Thank so, you. So let's go back. Let's look at some recent history. Thanks for listening to the, the listeners. The listeners. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, am, I am all of them. Yeah. Okay. You speak for our listeners. <laughs> Let's go back to the spring of 1993. All right. That's um, history. That's history. Uh, I had not been born yet. That's not true. <laughs> I was in high school. I wasn't Maxine born wasn't born yet. <laughs> oh, my God. I was born right. in 97. Oh, God. Well, well, you missed out on the great meningitis outbreak of 1993 here on campus, mm. uh, which happened in, in – yeah, I know, right? Uh, 1993. So um, epidemic is actually a technical term, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a threshold to meet. In uh, our case, it was three infections of bacterial meningitis within a week. Mm. Uh, it's a very serious illness. It's fatal in about 10% of it's cases. Terrifying. And uh, it has really serious complications. Um, uh, students at other colleges uh, in Connecticut had, had died from meningitis earlier in the year. So people were very alarmed about it. And this came right after spring weekend ended. And this is back when spring weekend was maybe a bigger deal yes. than it was. And it was right before finals week. So... The university and the state had to spring into action and had to uh, vaccinate 80% of the on-campus population Hmm. within a matter of days. This was the largest vaccination in Connecticut history. Wow. Uh, And it took place uh, thanks to the help of more than 240 staff and faculty volunteers who came in that weekend, which was Mother's Day weekend. Aww to administer the vaccines and also to hand out the many, many treats that were used as a way to try and induce (laughs) students (laughs) to get shots. So the state went through, I have it here, the state or the university went through uh, 13,000 Ben and Jerry's ice cream bars, Hmm. uh, 750 gallons of lemonade, 600 dozen cookies, 200 dozen brownies, and 1,200 pieces of cake. Wow. Uh, And all that was to administer 11,794 inoculations. All three students who had come down with the uh, infection all recovered. Thank goodness. So there's a happy ending. Um, And uh, it's really interesting to read about now because this is basically Mm pre-internet, certainly pre-cell phones and social media. So the way that the word was spread, I mean, it was a lot harder to let people know what was happening. So Domino's Pizza, which is still here locally Mm -hmm. in Maine, they actually had maps of all the off-campus apartment complexes because they were constantly delivering pizza. They gave them to the Red Cross, which used the Domino's Pizza maps to go and find where the students lived. Wow. And tell them to come and get shots. That's really interesting. See, interesting recent history. I have a couple things to say. One is that you'd think the threat of death would be enough to get you vaccinated. You wouldn't need Ben and Jerry's, but okay. Well, the New York Times did a little story about this. (laughs) Okay. And uh, they found some students who were not bothered at all. Uh, One student said, quote, I haven't been in contact with her at all, so I wasn't too nervous. Now, there were three people, so (laughs) that's actually not, uh, not thinking straight. Um, and there are a few other people who – there was one student who was quoted in there saying that they heard that drinking a lot of beer was a good way to uh, prevent getting. So they were just going to drink a lot of beer. How did we get our party school reputation? I don't know. I don't know. But more importantly, the importance of pizza delivery yeah. mm-hmm. in healthcare. There you go. That re- it also reminded me of the flu vaccine story you were telling recently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody – I wonder, on campus. I wonder what would happen today with social media and the internet. Like, I wonder if it would be easier or harder. Probably rumors would spread a lot faster. Yes. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, you'd be sending. I feel like the text alert system. Your you baby bet. would be a big, big help here. Maxine, yeah. what's what would what would work for you? You'd probably ignore a lot of things. I'd probably ignore, ignore a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it'd be harder with the uh, with the anti vaxxer Yeah. Yeah. See, that wasn't really a thing in '93. Right. Yeah. Wow. But text me. <laughs> <laughs> but what if there was cake? We could get everyone to come out for cake. Definitely. I, yeah. I, I like that story. That's interesting how they uh, – very resourceful and all the volunteers giving up their Mother's Day weekends. And Mother's Day, I assume, was not graduate or commencement that no, year. No, It is now. But Yeah, commencement back then was later in May. Uh, it was like toward the end of the month. Um, but, yeah, everyone kind of pulled together really quickly. And actually the state officials, when they came in, they said they doubted that they would get enough volunteers on the weekend. And uh, the Yukon community – Proved them wrong. Proved them wrong. Good. Uh, good yeah. on us. So, yeah, that's a kind of a heartening story. And also good that obviously the three people who yes. uh, had the infection lived. Very scary. So that's a... Uh, a really uplifting history corner. Yeah. You know what? It, it, had, it, a happy it had a silver lining. It had a happy ending. You're right. You're right. Um, thanks for listening this week as every week. If you uh, like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ Breen. Maxine, do you want... You can follow me on Twitter at Maxine Philivong. Julie? At Julie Bartuka. Ken. Today.yukon.edu. <laughs> and Fridays, the podcast on WHUS 91.7, Yukon Sound Alternative. And if you like what you hear, as always, uh, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Tell them that actually there's a lot of health news now about, you know, how you can, yeah? Marie Antoinette, let the meat cake. Good one. Wow. All right. Thanks, everybody. Ta-ta.